Well, I now invite you to turn with me in your Bibles, or you can read the text as it is projected on your screens. Revelation 2, we are continuing our sermon series titled, Christ's Seven Marks of an Ideal Church, and we're basing this series on the seven letters to the churches in the opening chapters of the book of Revelation, and we're up to the letter to the church in Pergamum and the mark that we see here for an ideal church is the mark of truth. Revelation chapter 2, reading from verse 12 to the end of verse 17. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are among you some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will, come to, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, today, as I indicated a moment ago, is Pentecost Sunday. It's the day when we celebrate the outpouring of the Spirit on the church. And you can read about that, of course, in Acts chapter 2. The question that I want to propose for you this morning is, how should we celebrate Pentecost? And the answer that I propose is this one, by listening to the voice of the Spirit. This is a lesson that is imparted again and again in these seven letters to the churches that we find in the opening chapters of the book of Revelation. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We need to listen to the voice of the Spirit. There are, of course, many other voices that are clamoring for our attention. Among these voices we discover from our text are the voices of seducers. And the voice of the Spirit must always silence the voice of seducers. The Spirit gives us tremendous insight on how to be a faithful church in a hostile world. The Spirit gives us insight on how to be a missional church. And we discover from this text that what ought to characterize a missional church is truth. But truth, we discover, is not merely something that we profess. It is especially something we practice. Truth in this passage is lived truth. So one of the marks, therefore, of an ideal church is 
truth. And we're going to explore precisely what Jesus says to the church in Pergamum. And as we do, we're going to see two things. First of all, we're going to see Christ's assessment of this church. And then secondly, we're going to see Christ's counsel to this church. Two things as we explore Christ's letter to the church in Pergamum. Christ's assessment of the church. And then secondly, his counsel to the church. Notice with me how the text begins. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Well, I want to ask you the question, who carries a sword? Well, a warrior carries a sword. And throughout the book of Revelation, Jesus is depicted as the great warrior who carries a sword. He is the great warrior who conquers the world by means of his sword, and his sword is his word. Well, what does Christ's sword do to us? What does Christ's word do to us? Well, it punctures our defenses. It pricks our consciences. It exposes our sins. This is what the word does. I had an occasion a number of years ago in a previous church where I preached a sermon, and after I had preached, someone approached me and said to me, it's very clear from the sermon you preached that you know exactly what I'm struggling with. And to be honest, I had no idea what the gentleman was struggling with, and to this day, I don't know what he was struggling with. But as he listened to the sermon, he felt as if he was being personally addressed, felt like his life was being exposed. That's what the word of Christ does. The word of Jesus punctures our defenses, our disguises, our masks. Nothing is hidden before him. And we learn from these letters to the churches that Jesus walks among the seven lampstands, walks among the churches, and he's intimately familiar with these churches. In every letter, we hear him say, I know, I am very familiar with what is going on in your churches. And that's exactly what we find Jesus saying here. I know what your life is like. And Jesus here provides his assessment of the church in Pergamum. And it is a mixed assessment. The church in Pergamum is a faithful but failing church. The church in Pergamum is faithful to its creed, but is failing in its conduct. The church in Pergamum is faithful to its, to its profession, but is failing in its practice. Jesus begins by saying, I know where you live. Now, we often hear that expression in our particular culture, and it's often uh, issued as a kind of threat. If you owe someone money, he might say, I know where you live. And I'm going to ensure that you repay the money you've borrowed from me. Or if you irritate a bully at school, he might say to you, I know where you live. You can't run and hide from me. But when Jesus says to the church in Pergamum, I know where you live, he's not issuing a threat. If anything, he's making a lament. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. What is Jesus talking about? Well, we need to know something about the city of Pergamum. 
It was a pagan city. It was a city with temples to multiple Greek gods, to Zeus, for example, and Aphrodite. And there was one significant temple in Pergamum to Asclepios, who was the god of health and healing, sometimes called the god of Pergamum. And there was a special temple erected for Asclepios, the god of health and healing, and associated with that temple, there was a school for medicine, a school for the study of medicine. And you might be interested to know that the symbol for Asclepios was a rod encircled by a snake. It's the symbol of medicine today. In fact, if you were to look at... Uh, you know, the, the website for the World Health Organization, WHO, you would discover that it's right at the center of the symbol for the World Health Organization. But of course, the uh, serpent is also a symbol for Satan, and that is why some people imagine that this is why Jesus says, this is where Satan has its throne. It's a reference to Asclepios, represented by the rod encircled by a snake. Maybe it means that the devil inhabits the World Health Organization, which I think is what some people believe, and is something we probably shouldn't. Um, but there's another reason why Pergamum might be considered the place where the devil has its throne, his throne. And that's because in the Greco-Roman world, what was prevalent was the worship of the emperor. And in Pergamum, in the year 29 BC, a temple was erected for Caesar Augustus. It was the very first temple constructed in Asia Minor for a living emperor. And everyone was expected to worship the emperor. But the Christians in Pergamum refused to worship the emperor. And so Jesus writes to them and he says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name, yet you did not renounce your faith in me. You remain true to my name. The name of Jesus represents who he is. The name of Jesus is a revelation of who he is and of what he has done. And the Christians in Pergamum, you see, believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, entrusted themselves to Christ, affirmed that Jesus is the God-man sent into the world to save sin sinners. The Christians in Pergamum embraced Jesus as Savior and Lord. But their faithfulness came at a cost. Their pastor... Antipas had been martyred for his faith. And we can only imagine what had happened. He was probably summoned before the local governor who would have also been a priest in the imperial cult. And this governor probably put a bust of the emperor on a rock and ignited a fire in front and said to Antipas, all you need to do is sprinkle a little incense in this fire and say, 
Caesar is Lord. And you can be free to go. But Antipas refused to worship the emperor. The Lord presumably gave him the strength. He did not renounce his faith in Jesus. He remained true to the name of Jesus. And perhaps he said, only Jesus is king. And for that, Antipas would have been martyred. Well, how does Jesus assess blessings? We, of course, don't live in a time, in our locale at least, of martyrdom. Would Jesus find us faithful? Well, no one is admitted into membership at blessings apart from affirming the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith, apart from affirming the Apostles' Creed, for instance. Everyone who is received into membership at blessings must affirm that Jesus is the God-man, that he is the Lord of the universe, that he is the Savior of sinners, who loves sinners like you and me and came to live the life we needed to live and to die the death we deserve to die. So far, so good. I think you could say blessings is a church that is faithful to its creed. But Pergamum was a church that was faithful to its creed, and yet it was failing in her conduct. Verse 14. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some of you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Balaam was an Old Testament character about whom we read in the book of Numbers. The context is Israel's wilderness journey. And the wilderness for Israel was a place of testing and temptation and growth. And the final enemy that Israel faced in her wilderness journey was Balak, the king of Moab. Now, Balak was terrified of Israel, and so he summoned for Balaam, a famous sorcerer, to pronounce curses upon Israel. You can read about this in Numbers 22 through 24. So then we read about Balaam going on a journey with his donkey. And eventually, as they're going on this journey, the donkey sees in front of him the angel of the Lord with a sword drawn. And he goes off the road. And Balaam whips the donkey, strikes the donkey, upset with him. And then they continue on their journey, and they go through a narrow passageway where there are walls on both sides. And again, the donkey sees the angel of the Lord with the sword drawn. And he tries to go around the angel, and he ends up crushing Balaam's foot against the wall. And so Balaam beats the donkey once more. And then a third time, they're going down a pathway, and the donkey sees the angel of the Lord, and he has nowhere to go. So he lies down on the ground. And Balaam beats the donkey once more. And then the Lord enables the donkey to speak. Imagine that. And the donkey essentially says, why are you beating me? I've been a, a faithful donkey to you. And Balaam essentially says, because you're treating me like a donkey. You're treating me like a fool. He says, 
But then Balaam sees the angel of the Lord. He had not seen the angel of the Lord with the sword drawn prior to this. Suddenly he sees the angel of the Lord with the sword drawn, and he acknowledges his sin. In any case, he eventually meets up with Balak, the king of Moab, and on three different occasions, Balak takes him up on a mountain, they construct altars, they sacrifice bulls and rams, and every time Balaam is supposed to open his mouth and pronounce a curse upon Israel, all he can do is bless Israel. Again and again, all he can do is bless Israel. Well, the question then becomes is, what's so wrong with Balaam? Why is Balaam presented as an enemy, as somebody who is hostile to the Lord and his will? Well, it's because he recognized that he was unable to curse Israel, and so he proposed a ploy to Balak, king of Moab. He said, why don't you just throw a big party where you have lots of food and dancing girls and try to seduce the Israelite men. And it's exactly what happened when the Israelite men smelled, you know, the roasted ram and saw the smiles of the dancing girls. They participated in this Moabite festival. And in that connection, we know this from Numbers 25, the very beginning of the chapter, they ate food sacrificed to idols. They bowed down before the gods of Moab and they committed sexual immorality. Well, why is the story of Balaam relevant to the church in Pergamum? Well, because in Pergamum there were professing believers who were endorsing participation in the city parties. Now, you have to understand that in the Greco-Roman world, social parties, city parties, always had a religious character. They always involved the worship of the emperor. Eating meat sacrificed to idols, often sexual immorality as well. And there were Nicolaitans in the church. There were people in the church saying, look, it's not a big deal. We don't want to be perceived as prudes. We don't want to be perceived as killjoys. We don't want to be interpreted as obnoxious people. Jesus doesn't mind. It's okay if we have a little fun. And I think we need to recognize this morning that this is a ploy of the devil. If you can't get someone to deny the truth, then offer the gratification of sinful passions. This especially is where we are vulnerable. It's easier to confess the truth than it is to live a holy life. So here's the lesson. We cannot separate our creed from our conduct. We cannot separate our profession from our practice. It's very possible to be rigid in doctrine and yet very sloppy in one's life. Rabbi Zacharias was a poor evangelist. Balaam spoke the truth 
but he was a seducer. The people of Israel had the right creed, but they compromised in their life. And this is the assessment that Jesus gives of the church at Pergamum. Faithful in creed, but failing in conduct. We need to ask ourselves this morning, what is Jesus' assessment of blessings? I said a moment ago, we could be perceived as a faithful church. No one is admitted into blessings without affirming the fundamental doctrines of Christianity surrounding the Trinity, the person and the work of Jesus. Jesus must be affirmed as divine and human. Jesus must be regarded as Savior of sinners and Lord of the universe. But we learn something new here. The truth test is not simply what do you think. The truth test is also how do you live. The truth test is not simply what is your opinion. The truth test is also what is your decision. I was reading last week Dallas Willard's book, The Divine Conspiracy, in which he says something quite shocking. He writes in connection with his comments on the Sermon on the, on the Mount, pay little attention, he says, to what people say. Pay little attention to what people say. The integrity of a person is apparent from how he or she lives. Well, how does Jesus assess blessings? We must always remember this specific ploy of the devil. If you can't get someone to deny the truth, offer the gratification of sinful passions. It's easier to be faithful in creed than it is to be faithful in conduct. This is where we are vulnerable. So a missional church, you see, must be faithful in doctrine, of course. But a missional church must also be holy in conduct. And if our lives don't reflect the holiness of Christ, if our lives don't showcase the fruit of the gospel, the spirit working in us, our message is compromised. And we can't expect people to pay any attention to us. And so what we need ourselves is the sword of Jesus, the word of Jesus to break our consciences and to expose our sins. Well, let's look secondly and briefly at Christ's counsel. Jesus gives Pergamum a threat and a promise. He says, verse 16, Repent, therefore, otherwise I will come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. If you read the story of Balaam, you will discover that he is opposed by the sword and eventually he is killed by the sword. And the lesson seems to be, if you follow Balaam in the way of his sin, you will also follow Balaam in the way of his punishment. Because the sword, you see, doesn't only prick the conscience of believers and expose sin, 
the sword also condemns sinners. The message of truth, the message of salvation becomes for the unrepentant a message of judgment. Therefore, repent. But Jesus also issues two promises, manna and a white stone. Verse 17, to the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. The people of Israel, from the passage that Rosalie read earlier, Exodus 16, subsisted on manna. They were able to complete their wilderness journey being nourished by this manna. And when they reached the land of Canaan, we learn from the book of Joshua, the manna stopped falling and they could eat the produce of the land of Canaan, but a jar of manna was hidden in the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place to which only the high priest had access. And that manna, you see, is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ a preview of the Lord Jesus Christ. He, Jesus himself says in John 6, is the bread of life, the bread that comes from heaven. And if we consume that bread, we will not die, but live. If we consume, eat the bread of life, we will be fully satisfied. Refuse to gratify your sinful passions and you can be wholly satisfied by the Lord Jesus Christ. Deny the pleasures of this world, and you can enjoy the pleasures of the next. The satisfaction of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then secondly, Jesus says, I will also give that person a white stone with a new name on it, known only to the one who receives it. That new name is the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the message here is if you remain true to the name of Christ, you will receive a greater revelation of that name. It's in line with what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, that now we see merely a representation of Christ as in a mirror we see Christ dimly. But then, in the future, when Jesus returns, we shall see him face to face and have a full and intimate knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we celebrate Pentecost? We celebrate Pentecost by listening to the voice of the Spirit And the voice of the Spirit always points us in one direction. And that's to the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, surrender our lives to him. He lived the life we needed to live. He died the death we deserved to die. We need to be faithful in our creed. We need to affirm everything that is said in Scripture. But we also need to be faithful in conduct so that there's consistency between our practice and our profession. And for that, we need to rely on the grace that Jesus provides. Keep in step with the Spirit 
he has poured out and expect that our greatest desires will be fully satisfied in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the great hope of the world, the great satisfaction offered to human desire. And we recognize as we listen to the words of this text that even when we are strong in terms of our commitment to doctrine, we are weak and vulnerable when it comes to temptation by which our sinful passions can be indulged and satisfied. And so we pray that by means of your spirit, you would enable us to be faithful in both areas with our lips and with our lives, in our creed and in our conduct. And we pray that by living holy lives that are faithful in doctrine, we might please you and honor you for the gift of Christ that you've given to us. And we pray, secondly, that by means of this witness, by means of lives of integrity, we might occasion interest in Jesus, interest in the gospel from those who observe us in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces. Help us this week and always to listen to the voice of the Spirit. And may that voice in our lives silence every other voice. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.